for today's episode, I have a very special guest. His name is Germinal G. Van, and he is an author, political scientist, essayist, and scholar. He has authored an impressive 14 books, most recently The Economic Condition of Black America in the 20th Century. Germinal was born and raised in Ivory Coast and emigrated to the United States in 2010. In 2014, he received a bachelor's degree in political science from the Catholic University of America and a master's in 2017 in political management from George Washington University. Through his various works and experiences, he offers a pragmatic and unique perspective on education, American politics, and economics. I am pleased to put out this episode as my talk with him was educational, enlightening, and inspirational. Even if we have opposing viewpoints on some topics, I'm truly grateful to have been able to learn from him throughout this interview. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Taking Back Your Power podcast. I'm your host, Isabel Palacios. Join me as I interview interesting and empowering people, discuss spirituality, mindset, business, and much more. My intention is to always remind you, your true beauty, your true worth, and your true power always come from within. Now let's open our minds and hearts and let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Taking Back Your Power. Today, I'm very excited to have an incredibly bright and interesting guest. I'm so honored to have him on today. His name is Germinal G. Van. And Germinal, I have been just in love with your work, your books, all this stuff that you've been putting out there. And I think it's so important, especially in today's climate, everything that you're sharing, especially your perspective and with your education and your training and all of that. So Germinal, thank you so much for being on today. And I'd like for you to introduce yourself and tell the audience a little bit about your background. Thank you very much, Isabel. It's, a, it's an honor to be on your platform. Thank you for this great opportunity. So my name is Germinal G. Van G stands for Gerard. Um, I was born and raised in Ivory Coast, West Africa. So Ivory Coast is a tiny country on the Atlantic, on the coast of the Atlantic Ocean in West Africa. So as you could hear my accent, French is my first language. And uh, so I went to elementary school and uh, secondary school back home. And then I moved to the United States in 2010. But before moving to the United States in high school, we have majors. So it's something that people in America don't have. So we have major. So at first, so at first, I majored in math, physics, and biology, and I failed. Hmm. I failed miserably uh, <laughs> on the baccalaureate exam. So the baccalaureate exam is the high school uh, diploma exam that you need to pass in order to go to college. So I failed, and I switched uh, courses. So I moved to classical courses. So uh, social sciences, so uh, philosophy, history, literature, so French literature and stuff like that. And I. Then I got my degree and I came to the U.S. So when I came to the U.S. with a student visa, I studied political science at the Catholic University of America. And when I came, I was really, really convinced that I would be president of my country. That was the reason why I even wanted to study politics in the first place. But at the time, I was uh, I saw politics or let me put it that way, I was romanticizing about politics because politics is normally the battle of ideas. Normally, 
people who do politics are those who have a certain level of education and a certain level of intellectual comprehension of political ideas. But today, it's not the case anymore. Today, anybody can run for office. You know, it's uh, politics is not does not reflect uh, what it used to reflect. Back at the time of Nixon, mm -hmm. for instance, people who were in politics were lawyers. They were people who had PhDs. But today, you don't even need a degree and you can hold office. So... Uh, so at the time, yeah, I was romanticizing politics. So I graduated with my degree in politics. Then I went to grad school. And um, I studied politics too at the George Washington University. I graduated there. And it was really tough for me to get a job. It was really tough for me to get a job because at the time, I didn't understand. I wanted to be a politician. But then there's some realities that I started to understand, like especially back in Africa. It's like I realized that my my mindset was no longer on the same page with the African mindset. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I'm going to come into that very soon. You can even use that as your first question if you want. <laughs> so, <laughs> so my mindset was not the same. So I realized that I could do politics here in the U.S. Like I'm, I felt more American than African, although I have both cultures in me, but I felt more to be an American than an African. So I decided to mm -hmm. go to law school. So I started studying for the LSAT after my master's degree. I took the LSAT three times, I failed. And uh, yeah, <laughs> and I felt really insulted because, I mean, you know, with the LSAT, you also have the language barrier, spe uh, specifically mm -hmm. for somebody like me. And you have the time, like you have like 35 questions. No, you have 25 questions for 35 minutes. And you think, I think in French, then in English, I try to see what it means and the time is running. So I couldn't get a, a really good score. But I managed to get into two schools, but not the schools that I wanted to. So mm -hmm. I decided to write because I knew that that was a, a skill that I had. So I wrote my first book in 2018 and I published it. Uh, it's called, um, I can't even remember. It's called... Um, uh, American political culture and observation from the outside. So basically in that book, like I gave my uh, impression of the political culture of the United States. What makes the United States unique mm -hmm. as a country mm -hmm. and what makes the United States um, the most powerful nation when it comes to um, its political structure. So, and then from there, I became obsessed with writing and I was you know, writing books and stuff like that. So once the first book is out, the rest becomes easier. And then like, mm -hmm. so when I started writing, like I had a huge transformation too, intellectually speaking. So at first I started purely with politics and legal theory. And then I started moving toward economics. And then when I started moving toward economics, I moved also from, be from being a Republican to being a libertarian. We're going to discuss that mm -hmm. through your podcast too, that transition. <laughs> because I have, have Great. I have a lot of contentions with conservatives too. I'm, I mostly mm. agree with, I agree with most of what they, they stand for, but not all of it because sometimes I think conservatives could be hypocritical to some extent, but I will elaborate mm. on that uh, throughout the, the interview. And then, yeah, so when I start uh, writing toward economics, that's how I start to teach myself economics 
And then I started getting into economic theory. So first I learned um, through the philosophical standpoint of economics. And now I got into the technical standpoint, like math and statistics and econometrics and all of that. And, and all of this, I taught myself that. I, yeah, yeah, the last degree I had was a master's degree. And I'm teaching myself <laughs> economics now. I'm teaching myself statistics. I'm taking now a, um, a certificate on Coursera in statistics. It's offered by Duke University. So I'm trying to do that. So thank you so much for you know talking about your background. And that's incredible because for a lot of people, they kind of get stuck in a certain place. Like for you, you know, you failed, you know, from back in, 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 uh, Ivory Coast and you know you went through this situation and it's kind of like most people would give up for you you kept pushing through that and that's really incredible so going to my first question that you um you talked about is how did you you know transition you know from that mindset of okay I don't feel like I relate to you know my African roots and now I'm here in America how did that come about so Everything started from even back home. So back home, I, I never had the African mentality. So what I mean by the African mentality is that in Africa, we value the collective over the individual. Mm. But the problem is that the collective is made of individuals. So for the collective to thrive, people have to pursue their own self-interest first. It's when the people are satisfied with the self-interest that they can now focus on the collective interest. If you, Isabel, I'm asking you to give me $100, but you don't even have $100 for yourself. How are you, you going to give me those $100 that I'm asking you? You see what I mean? Yeah. So you need to manage to get to where you want to be first so that you can now help those who are beneath you and say, okay, guys, you guys can come now. I managed to be there. Thanks to me. I can help you get to where, to where I am today. So, and, and, and that's what the problem is in, in Africa. We, we have that mentality of valuing the group over the individual. And by valuing the group over the individual, we dismiss people's values. We dismiss people's self-interest. We dismiss um, people's ambitions and objectives. We have to do things simply to please the group. Mm-hmm. Let me give you a, uh, an example. I don't know if, if you're familiar with that, but that happens in both communities, in the black community and in the uh, Hispanic community. So, you know, in a, let's, let me take um, a typical African family. It doesn't mean that every African family is like that, don't get me wrong, but a low-income African family that has many kids. Among the many kids, there is one that is kind of brown, right? So they're going to send that bright kid to Europe or to the U.S. or basically to the West mm-hmm. to, uh, for a better future. So that kid goes to Europe or, or, to the, or to the U.S. or to Canada. He gets a job. And the job that he, he or she gets is not even like a great job. And then his parents will call every time, send us money, send us money. Mm-hmm. But they don't even ask how he or she is doing what is the salary they're earning, how much taxes they're paying, whatever money they make, they have to send it home. Mm-hmm. But what about the other kids that are home? If, I mean, if they're not uh, bodily disabled, they can work too. Mm-hmm. So it creates a, a, a mentality of dependency. 
You see what I mean? So they, they so they're all depending on that kid who is abroad to send them money instead of uh, trying to uh, to better their own skills. To instead of you know trying to further themselves so that they don't have to rely all the time on the kid that is abroad mm-hmm. because the kid that is abroad is life is tough on him too. They don't know the job he's doing. They don't know the conditions under which he's working. They don't know how much he's making. They don't know how, how, how much taxes he's paying. Mm-hmm. They don't know all of that. All they care about is like, it's the end of the month. Send us some money so that we can take care of your siblings. Yeah. And it, it happens a lot too in the Hispanic community too. Like low-income Mexicans that come here, or Mexican or Hondurans or Guatemalans that come here, they come and... I remember in DC, like there was, I used to live uh, close to a um, dinero exchange store. Mm, so you yeah. see like, lot of, yeah, you see a lot of people like they go, like they do Western Union, they send money back home. And mm-hmm. so you see what I mean? Like it's, so, so that's one of the mentalities that if you don't do that, they're going to say that you're bad. You, you, you don't care about your, your people. You don't care about, no, like the fate of an individual is not based on his group on his ethnic group, it's not based on his skin color, it's not based on what the group thinks. The fate of an individual is based on his education. Based on the education you have, you're able to determine your own future. Mm-hmm. That's what it's about. But you cannot categorize people based on the skin colors, based on their ethnic group, or based on their religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. If you, Isabel, for example, saying like, oh yeah, you're, you're Latina, so all Latinos are the same. No, not all Latinos <laughs> are not the same. No, people are individuals. Mm-hmm. You, Isabella, you have your own set of values. Sure, based on your ethnic background, you may have some characteristics that are similar to most Hispanics people, but you're an individual after all. Mm-hmm. Your education is not the same as other Hispanics. My mm-hmm. education is not the same as other Africans. So, you know, we're all different in our uniqueness and that's Mm -hmm. what the african uh, mentality refused to embrace or accept that's when i realized that i i could no longer really try to uh, to live back home because my mentality was no longer the same as theirs yeah and i completely i can totally understand that because like you said, we are individuals and that's the problem with, you know, kind of identity politics, as you can see here in the United States is where we're going to this place politically where it's, and it's funny to those of you guys who are listening, I also have a background in political science and similarly to, yeah, similarly (laughs) to you, Germinal, I, you know, kind of became disillusioned with it. And I, I wanted to become a politician and I realized, you know, it's not, it's not what they make it out to be when you're growing up, you know? So that's one thing. And I realized that we're kind of going into this idea, especially in the mainstream of identity politics, you know, looking at Latinos or blacks in a certain monolith, you know, and that's so, I think that's, that can tend to kind of bring people down because it's like, they see you just as a, part of a collective and it's not seeing you for you, your individual potential, because yeah, an individual in a group can be, you know, you can look like everyone else, but if you have something about you that's different and it goes against the norm that's pushed towards the group, it can tend to suppress your own talents, your own abilities. 
and keep you there kind of in that mindset. So it's that's good, very it's interesting. Good that you mentioned that because I, I wrote a book called The Problem of Egalitarianism. And in the chapter two of that book, I explain exactly what collectivism is and, what, and why the notion of, of group is bad. Because even in the group, we never, we never promote the collective good. In fact, we promote an individual good, and it is the good of the strongest personality. Look at Nazi Germany. Hitler was able to rise to power, and he was able to implement a dictatorship because he transformed German society into collectivism. Dictatorship cannot occur in a society that promotes individualism. Mm -hmm. Because in order to control people, you need to put them into boxes. Mm -hmm. And you need to subjugate them to your will. So in a group of four or five people, there's always one person that has a strong personality and, and force that personality on others and others fear. So they don't, even if they disagree with his decision or the way he does things, they will not express it. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? So their, so their skill, their judgment, and everything is undermined by that very person. So, so, so to say that we promote the collective good, in fact, is a myth. When politicians say we're promoting the collective good, they're promoting their own agendas. When mm -hmm. someone in the group says, oh, we pro, uh, we, we're doing this for the group, no, he's doing it for himself. Because the group is made of individuals, and individuals do not always have the same interests. It is impossible. So in the group, there's always, when a group goes into one direction, it is because of the willpower of that very person in the group who wants everybody to follow. Mm -hmm. It is always like that. So that mentality actually goes against the modern day look, especially here in America, of social justice. So what are your views on the current climate going towards social justice and kind of leaving the individual to, okay, you either join us or you're, you know, whatever kind of thing they want to throw at you? <laughs> yeah. So yesterday I had that interview with Dartmouth Libertarians and they asked me the same questions about social justice. And I'm going to give the same answer here. Social justice is a myth. The reason why it's a myth is it is because, so first of all, a myth, as you know, is something that has never existed. That's what a myth is. The reason why I say that social justice is a myth is because it has no legal ground. It has no legal ground. No one can tell me what is the legal ground of social justice. Because social justice promotes what? Equality. Equality of income, equality of opportunity. First of all, People cannot or can never start at the same line. Never. Mm -hmm. But we create our own opportunities. And the way to create our own opportunities is to live in, in an environment that has the rule of law, where we're all seen as the same before the law. If you break the law, you should be held accountable for your actions. If I do the same, I should be held accountable for my actions but we create our own opportunities. People will never be born at the same line. You have people who were born in families that already have the material wealth they need. Are you going to be mad at them because they were born with parents who have two cars, a swimming pool, a chauffeur, a nanny, 
and then you go and then the other one who who has nothing i mean this is stuff of life mm-hmm. even rivers are not equal look at the mississippi river and look at the amazonian river they're not the same or even the, the congo river mm-hmm. the congo river for instance which is one of the longest rivers in the world and one of the longest in africa is completely impractical for commercial purposes but the mississippi river people use it for commerce all the time so you see that rivers are not the same even mountains are not the same so geography is the first element that that shows that equality is not real just based on geography two people may be born in the same um in the same area but if one was born on the other side of the mountain compared to the other he's going to miss a lot of opportunities Mm-hmm. That happens. People, for example, who live in the mountains are more backwards. Those who live in the um, Cordillera de los Andes in South America, in, in Peru and Colombia, those people are backwards compared to those who live in Lima and Bogota. Mm-hmm. What, what are we trying to fix here? What equality are we trying to fix here? Is it people's fault to live in Bogota? or Lima if they're more advanced than those who live in the Cordillera de los Santos. Come on. And, mm-hmm. and, and, that's, and that's the thing with, with, with social justice. They're saying that we, we want to fix the wrong uh, in terms of social inequality. But social inequality is natural. Mm. Innovation is the consequence of uh, social inequality. It is because we have social inequality that we're able to have innovation. Without um, social inequality, we cannot have innovation. If everybody's equal, there is no incentive. Mm-hmm. There's literally no incentive. There's no incentive to do better. There's no incentive to um, to improve yourself. Nothing. Mm-hmm. We're all the same. We're doing the same thing. So, if, so naturally, you will not want to put any effort anymore. And on top of that, justice is simply when you fix a wrongdoing. If I, Germinal, offended you, Isabella, you're going to take me to court for if I stole your stuff or, you know, I say something that offended you. You're going to take me to court and, um, the, and the, the judicial system is going to administer justice to fix a wrongdoing. But with social justice, what are we going to fix here? So people are putting the whole society into this illusion of that there is, let's restore social justice. Let's uh, make people equal in their in the social status that's mm-hmm. that's purely wrong it's it, it's a myth it doesn't exist and they and they, they and they're doing that virtue signaling to make people feel bad to make those who don't believe in social justice feel bad it doesn't mm-hmm. work on me <laughs> Never. yeah well because you have the experiences you know and you came from africa and you came to the United States and you have that immigrant experience and you have seen that inequality that it has happened between Africa and the United States. And, you know, I, I agree a lot with what you say because, you know, I'm, I was born here, but my parents were immigrants from Colombia and Guatemala. And that's what they always taught me that I'm not here to be like everyone else, that I have to be the best that I can be. And I was brought to this country that was born in this country. I need to be grateful for that and make the best because if I work hard, yeah, I'm Latina, I'm a woman, I'm all, I might have these things that are quote unquote against me, but that is my fuel. That is what I have to do is I have to move past that label. And I feel that 
social justice, while a lot of it does have altruistic, you know, undertones. And I think that people who believe in social justice, they want the greater good and that, you know, but I think that it does a lot of disservice to people because even if you try to inculcate social justice, not everyone's going to receive it equally because everyone has different economic backgrounds. Everyone has different financial situations. And it's to me, it just seems like people are trying to sell this idea to perhaps go into something else. And there's a lot of anti-capitalist undertones because capitalism, like you said, it creates a kind of a competition where if you're not running your business well and you treat your customers bad, you go out of business, you know, and the person who delivers the best products and the best everything, they're going to grow and grow and grow. And that is the nature of the society that we have now. And people say that that is, you know, goes against social justice. It is not fair. Everyone has to be equal. So what is your take on that idea of capitalism and kind of like push towards socialism, communism we have now? So first of all, I'm going to come back a little bit on what you say when you mention altruism and people who have altruistic. First of all, altruism is a myth too. <laughs> the reason why I'm saying this is because people who try to promote altruism, in fact, they're looking for self-gratification. Mm. When you do something good, deep inside you, you're doing it because you want to feel better about yourself. Mm-hmm. Because the truth is, no one will ever love you more than yourself. People love you because you love yourself. So when you come and say that I'm doing this for that person because I love him so much, like that's, it's, I'm sorry for the word, but it's bullshit. <laughs> you, you do it because you want to feel good about yourself deep down. I mean, sure, you may have good intention. You may want to truly help the person, but at the end of the day, you want to feel good about the fact that I'm a good human. I help people. The only altruistic person is Jesus Christ. <laughs> He's the only one. Mm-hmm. From what I know, human beings are not altruistic by nature. Human beings are selfish by nature. It mm. is rational selfish, uh, selfishness. It is rational greed. And there is nothing wrong with trying to keep the money you work for. How do you call that greed? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you call that greed? The money that you work for. Let's say, okay, let's say, Sabrina, that I hire you to mow my loan. The whole summer. And I'd say, okay, I'm going to pay you, I don't know what, 100 bucks per day for the whole summer. If you do the calculation, it will make you a couple thousand dollars. But those couple thousand dollars, you work for it. Mm-hmm. You came and mowed the lawn under 100 uh, degrees heat every day from May until August. You make your money. And then the neighbor says here, the money what Isabella has isn't fair. My son doesn't have that. Why she has all that money and my son doesn't have it. But where, but where was he or her son when you were mowing the lawn mm-hmm. the entire summer? That's the thing. That's the thing that people don't say about capitalism. People, when we speak about capitalism, people see capitalism as just a thing of profit. Mm-hmm. But it's more than that. In capitalism, you also have losses too. You have losses too. And mm-hmm. on top of that, Yesterday I was saying that, you know, capitalism has a bad connotation. In fact, the first time it was used, it was used by Karl Marx. 
Hmm. He, the the uh, Communist Manifesto and uh, uh, Das Capital is two most prominent books. So I, I usually prefer to say free market because mm -hmm. when I say capitalism, people see it from a bad eye, but it's, it's the free market. And, and, and the thing, what makes the free market so important and relevant and always be that way is because people use the knowledge, the skills, and their capital to create wealth. Wealth is something you create. It doesn't fall out of the sky. It doesn't fall from the sky. Money doesn't grow in the tree. You have to create it. You have to go and work if you want to have an income. And social justice takes that away. Mm -hmm. By taking away what the person has worked for to give it to the person who doesn't work for, you're not doing a service. As you say, it's a huge disservice to both people. Because the person who receives it without putting the effort will get accustomed to not having to put effort to earn things. And the person who's been working all the time to earn his things will be marginalized because he won't believe anymore that uh, his work will be rewarded. So at the end, people are both equal in their misery. That's the mm -hmm. true equality <laughs> that social justice creates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, one thing I have, I used to travel to Cuba. I used to practically live there a couple years ago. And one thing I did realize was how much, you know, everyone's just in that same level of, like you said, misery of poverty. And the people who could, you know, do better in society were probably the politicians, the people in government, and, you know, like a few athletes, if that, athletes and musicians, if that, you know, and that's one thing that people need to understand is that when the government has so much control and power over your resources, your money, your business, all of that, it's not, they're not going to go and, and give it all to the people they're giving, they're lining their pockets with it. And that's the premise of, you know, socialism. They say, okay, well, we're going to, you know, give social justice to all these people. So you over there, you know, you have a certain amount of privilege, you should get, you know, taxed, or this should be taken away from you to give to these people. But then at the same time, all they're doing is taking away from that person so that that person goes to the level of the people who are, you know, poor or whatever it might be. And then it keeps everyone down while the politicians get richer. And that's one thing. I have always been very much against, you know, kind of like the libertarian view. I have always been against a really big government because I don't believe a big government is going to solve our issues. I think that when people, when we have a true free market, people are going to regulate themselves. You know, it regulates itself and you don't have to be policing people. You don't have to be, you know, in people's business or whatever it might be. You let them do what it has to do. And I, I, I want to ask you this. Do you believe we have a true free market system right now in the United States? No, we don't. We have a state capitalism. Hmm. Uh, we don't have a free market. You know, people confuse being pro-business and pro-market. I'm, I'm anti-business, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean by anti-business is that you have corporations. Being pro-business means being pro-corporations. You have corporations who have lobbyist groups that tell politicians what to do. 
-hmm. So politicians implement laws that have that enable corporations to have the monopoly of the industries. So it is hard for the little guys. So it is hard for you and me to create a business. Mm -hmm. It's hard for you and I to to start off. So we don't have a free market. We have intellectuals who promote socialism because they think that they are they have a higher education than most of us and they can tell us what to do and we have the business people who uh have enough power to control the political fate of politicians so politicians implement laws and legislation that uh, give them the monopoly of whatever industry they're aiming to control and it, it is impeding the advancement of the little guy who's starting off mm -hmm. simple as that so yeah we have we have a mixed economy a state capitalism and we moving towards socialism because most of the public goods that we have now are highly are they're highly regulated mm -hmm. yeah and that's one thing is that in certain states it's harder for you to start a business and we see it now with the pandemic who's getting hit the hardest right now is the small mom and pop, you know, and, and I think, I think a lot of that is by des design to, yeah. you know, create this place where small businesses can open, you know, you have to lock down your business, but Walmart can stay open. Target can exactly. stay open. Because yeah. in the legislation that the politicians implement to give monopoly to businesses, to uh, corporations, there's a lot of, regulatory laws and licensing that are imposed on small businesses mm -hmm. those fees that those small businesses have to pay just to keep just to either open the business or to keep their business going it's 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 ridiculous mm -hmm. so that's why businesses like small and big businesses have trouble even those agencies like the small business administration to help small business right they don't do their jobs they make it harder for small businesses to to thrive. It was easier to open a small business in the 1910s, in the 1920s. There was mm -hmm. no regulations. But today, look, even to become a beautician, you need to, to, to be licensed to do that. Mm -hmm. Normally, the only licensed job were the law and, and, and the medical industry. You want to be a doctor? Sure. Like We want to make sure that you know you're, you have the license you need in order to do your operations on people because people's lives you have in your hands. The same with the lawyer. You have the life, you have the fate of someone's hand, uh, of someone in your hands. So we want to make sure that we have competent professional lawyers and doctors who are performing the jobs. But for someone who wants to be a beautician, you know, let them do their thing. You don't need to, to make them pay a license or you don't have to regulate them. Like now, like it's, people have to spend almost $10,000 just to get the license to become a beautician or a barber. Or, or to become a barber, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and going off of that, what would you say currently how things are going, you know, with the, the economy right now, with the pandemic and all of that, how would you say you see this going, you know, in the future? Do you think that we are headed for an economic collapse? You know, how do you foresee all of that right now? So what I see is that we're going to have a recession unless we already have a recession but if we don't we're gonna have a recession but more importantly 
basically the digital market is going to expand. Because if you think about it, I mean, if you look at my post, I've been telling people like, you know, try to get degrees in STEMs. Mm. Because although the pandemic happened, people who work in the restaurant industry, people who do like kind of like manual labor, why I say manual labor is like barbers, beauticians, those who work in the restaurant industry, all of these people had to close. Mm-hmm. But the people who are doing remote jobs, especially like who are in IT, who are doing data science things, they kept working and they kept making money. So today, of course, there are some jobs that can never be replaced. For instance, being a bus driver, that cannot be replaced. You cannot drive a bus to a computer. Mm, <laughs> not yet. Not <laughs> yet, but people will try to find a way to do that. I don't know how that's going to work, but good luck. But like, for instance, like uh, administrative jobs, that will, that will start moving toward the computer now. Mm-hmm. And a lot of jobs are going to be created that way. People are creating apps to facilitate human efforts. So that's what it's going to do. So the physical capital is now going, going to transition into a digital capital. So now if you want to create a business, create it online. On your bed, you're on your computer, or you need a computer and a good Wi-Fi, boom, boom, boom you're good to go and you start mm-hmm. selling products online and you make money. That's how I do my books too. I, I use, I use Amazon for it instead of like going through a conventional publisher. I'm not, I mean, of course I'm like going to a conventional publisher is good, but it takes time. It is long and there is no guarantee that they're going to publish you. Mm-hmm. But with Amazon, I publish the book. It is there. I do the promotion all the time. It is a lot of work. But I do the promotion, and then it's by publishing a lot of books that now people go on your page. They have there's a lot of products. They will see what title they're into, what is not too appealing to them, and they will make their choice. And that's how I make my money. And Amazon mm-hmm. gives me my portion. It keeps like thirty percent of the royalties. I keep seventy, and and that's how I move on. And even soon, you will see that people will start now renting apartments online. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Soon Amazon is going to take um, renting apartments. Soon you will be able to rent apartments through Amazon. It's a matter of time. Everything is moving to the com- through the computer. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's how I see the economy going. Like artificial intelligence will, an algorithm will take over the world. It's already taking the world over. Now we make decisions based on, sh- on social media. We make decisions based on reviews. Mm-hmm. You know, but reviews are not always objective. It's not because, I mean, don't get me wrong. If you go to a page and you see 75 reviews and among the 75, 70% of them are bad, it kind of tell you something, of course. But even though uh, those who wrote those reviews, do they truly mean it? Not necessarily. So it's kind of hard, but that's where we're heading to. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're basing our decisions on now. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I see that. And that's why Amazon has gotten so big because, you know, everything they just, I think they're in the trillions now because of the pandemic, you know, while other businesses, brick and mortar businesses closed down and all yep. of that, these people just got huge. Oh yeah. And that just shows you, you know, instead, and I think a lot of people get mad at Amazon for that. And yeah, I think Amazon, you know, people, people don't understand that the market is ruthless. It's uh it's nothing lasts forever. The thing is, 
when we call, so why we call market failures? In fact, they're not failures. When a business fails, it means that that business has, has attained its, its limits. Mm-hmm. So once you have attained your limits, it's time for you to go away. So someone will take your spot. I mean, and it, it sounds brutal, but that's what it it's is. It's true. It's true. You know, as yeah. an entrepreneur, you know, I'm I'm an entrepreneur and I do many different things. And that's one oh, yeah. thing. When you start a business or you decide to work for yourself, you have to understand you are taking a big risk. Oh, and, yeah. and that's the thing is not everyone's cut out to do that. You know, some people, they uh-huh. have an idea, comes out into the market, it fails, they give up. But a true entrepreneur and that entrepreneurial spirit is, this product didn't work. I'm going to innovate, try something else, go into this market, go. And you just keep doing until something oh, yeah. works and sticks. Absolutely. And that's why I do my books. Like people, everyone see me as this um, data-driven guy, this <laughs> scientific guy, this intellectual. It's true. I am. But I'm also an entrepreneur because when you're an author, when you write books, you're an entrepreneur. The book you sell is your product. Mm-hmm. And I've been working for myself for since... 2018, since I wrote my first book, I've been doing that full time now. And at first, Isabella Limiter, it was tough. Mm-hmm. I could go like some weeks without making a single sale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> weeks without making sales. It was tough. I was like, what am I doing wrong? Like, why people don't like my books? Like, I know, like, <laughs> deep down, I knew that. I know I'm a good writer. I know I know how to convey to convey my ideas, but why it doesn't pick? But it is recently that now my work is starting to pay off. Mm-hmm. But what happened? I changed my strategy. At first, my books were a little thin. Now they're like kind of heavy because I became I started using a lot of data. I started using like analytical reasoning. So there was a change that occurred. And people saw that change. And now people and now people are buying the books every single day. Every day I check the the the, the sales is going up. But that's great. But but that but that's the work of an entrepreneur. It's tough. Like you go through times where you feel that the world is against you. Mm-hmm. You think that your work is not worth it. And then it comes that day where things start to blossom. And then you're like, oh, okay. So what, is, so, so what is important to understand is that everything is a process. I don't think there is necessarily a destination. Mm-hmm. I think the destination is within the process. You know what I mean? Like it's within the process. It's like as you go along, that's when you start reaching the goals. Right. Because if you think about it, the human nature is never satisfied. We, we, we want something, we get it, and as soon as we get it, we get bored. So we want more. Mm-hmm. So, that, so that's what I realized. I said, there is no destination. Mm-hmm. Everything is a process. You reach stuff through the process. Mm-hmm. You say, oh, I want to win this. You, 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 you work hard for it. Once you win it, then what? true and you you gotta fall in love with that process exactly you have to fall in love with the process the process is the real destination there's Mm -hmm. no destination that we think there is exactly i agree and you know going off of that you actually published a really great book called the economic condition of black america in the 20th century and i wanted to ask you what inspired you to write that book because especially in times like these that book is just so important yeah, so 
I wrote so. Okay, I'm thinking about how I'm going to put it. So I started writing the book in October of 2019. What inspired me was that I wanted to understand what caused the poverty of Black people. Because Africans, when they come in the US, they're not at the same level as African Americans. Mm-hmm. Most Africans who come in the US, they're educated. They come mostly come under with a student visa. So they go to school, they get the bachelor's and the master's. Even if you look, the most educated people in terms of degrees are Africans, especially Nigerians. So I wanted to understand. I was like, I came here in 2010, nine years ago, nine, 10 years ago. And I was able to move up the ladder although English is not my first language, I was able to get my degrees, to improve my English, to write books in a language that is not my first language. I even feel more comfortable writing in English than in French. I feel more comfortable speaking English than French. And there are some people who were born here, who grew up here, and yet they're still at the bottom. Hmm. So I was like, I need to, to make, I need to do some research about it. In order to understand what's going on now, let me go a century back. So when I, do the, when I did the research, I realized that in fact, what impoverished black people, it is not racism, it is not white privilege. However, that's why I'm going to make my first contentions with conservatives. You know, conservatives tend to say, they always mock liberals, like liberals are emotional, they, they don't use facts, uh, they follow their heart when they discuss policies. I don't dispute that. Conservatives always say we use facts, we use logic, we use statistics. Mm-hmm. However, they use facts, logic, and statistics selectively, and that's where my problem is. They're not intellectually honest. Mm. They use facts, statistics, and logic in a way that fits their narrative. When you claim that you use facts, statistics, and logic, you have to take all the facts into account, even the facts that do not fit your narrative. So you have people like Candace Owens, like Brandon Tatum, like uh, the twin, the Odge twins, or the twin brothers, whatever the name is. You have those people saying that white privilege is a myth. Once again, I repeat, a myth is something that has never, ever existed. Mm-hmm. White privilege has existed. It, has, it, it is because it has existed that we had Jim Crow. It is because it has existed that we had the redlining policies. It is because white privilege has existed that we had the great migration. Black people were moving from the South to the North and to the West to have the better economic opportunities because they were oppressed in the South. Mm-hmm. However, black people were better off economically under Jim Crow than they were under the welfare state. Hmm. So it was the welfare state that impoverished black people. In the 1920s, when President Harding was the president of the United States, then Calvin Coolidge took over. So the 1920s was called the Roaring Twenties, the, the period of the Great Expansion. Black self-unemployment was higher than white self-unemployment wow black people oh yeah absolutely it's in the book it's in chapter three mm-hmm. the data is the u.s census bureau you can look it up um black people were creating businesses left and right why because president harding did nothing 
he did not implement any policy to inject money in the economy, to, um, he did not implement any government intervention policies to regulate things. He let the market regulate itself. Mm -hmm. Black people were better off. Under Jim Crow, the family unit within the black community was united. You had a black, you had a father, a mother at home. Today, you only have the mother, the mother have four, five, six kids from different fathers. The father has to leave the house if the mother needs, have, uh, must receive her welfare benefits. Mm -hmm. That's what happened. So it is the welfare state that destroyed, that destroyed and impoverished black people. It wasn't white privilege. So I understand the concern when they try to discredit white privilege so that people will not feel that victimhood mentality. But it is important to remain intellectually honest mm -hmm. when, you, when you want to educate people. White privilege has existed, but it is no longer relevant in this 21st century. That's the accurate mm -hmm. answer. Mm -hmm. That's the accurate answer. It's not that white privilege is a myth. No, it's not a myth. It is real. But it, is, it has no longer any relevance in the social and economic advancement of minorities, and especially Black people. Because mm -hmm. Black people have done significant progress uh, under the adversity of racism than they've done under the welfare state. It was the government that implemented policies that fail Black people. Let me tell you this. Slavery was abolished in 1865. In 1868, the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment were implemented. The 14th Amendment made black people legal citizens of the United States, so it gives them the same rights as white people. Mm -hmm. And the 15th Amendment gave black people the right to vote. So black people had the right to vote for a very long time. And then what happened? It was, so these two amendments are constitutional rights in the South. Um, southern states implement a coercive and oppressive system on black people. It was the role of the federal government to intervene and say, you are violating the rights of these people. Mm -hmm. Don't forget that constitutional rights trump states' rights. And the constitutional rights of black people were violated on the daily basis and the federal government did nothing. They said, mm -hmm. oh, it's states' rights. You know, the federal government cannot intervene in it. Well, states' government have the right to do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. But when the constitutional rights of an individual are violated by the coercive powers of the local and the state governments, the federal government must intervene to protect these rights. Right. Instead, the Supreme Court, Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896, Say, oh, separate but equal. The Supreme Court even enhanced that discrimination. So you see that the true responsible of the failure of black people is the federal government. Mm -hmm. It is not racism. It is not white privilege, although they play a part. But it is because the federal government legitimized racism and white privilege that those things became a driving force of oppression. But it was the federal government who's the true engine of the oppression of minorities. So mm -hmm. that's what I explained in the book. So that's why I wanted to enlighten people about it and tell them that it is the political process. We tend to believe that the political process will save us. 
that's why I refuse to become a politician anymore. <laughs> I refuse to be part of that. Yeah. Well, you know, and going off of that, what I've noticed is when you go back in history and you have this conversation about Jim Crow and, you know, all these different things, people tend to blame it. Oh, that was the Republicans or that was the Democrats. What in your research did you find which political party or which ideology was most behind, you know, the welfare state and all these things that were implemented that you, you know, you found brought black, the black community down? So both parties, of course, participated in the sustentation of the welfare state. But it was the Democratic Party. Hmm. The Democratic Party, of course, is the party that was in favor of slavery because slavery was an economic system then. It was an economic system, but it proved that it's a very inefficient system because the, the southern state, when you look, they're still backwards. When you look at the state, the list of the, all the U.S. states by income per capita, all the state of the Bible Belt are at the bottom of, of the table. Mm-hmm. And then the Northern state and the Western state are doing fine. So it was the Democratic Party that enhanced uh, slavery. They're the one who created the KKK and they're the mm-hmm. one who maintained Jim Crow. At the time, they were called the Dixiecrats. Mm-hmm. They were called the Dixiecrats. So they were the one that were in favor of white privilege. They were the one that were in favor of eugenics. Mm-hmm. To the point that they, they, they even made eugenics a required academic disciplines at universities. Mm-hmm. Genetic, uh, genetic uh, de- de- determinism. It was the same way political science is a field that we study at school, eugenics was. Mm-hmm. Because that shows that how white privilege was real. <laughs> you see my point? It's like, crazy. It, yeah, yeah, it is. So, and, and the Dixiecrats were the ones that were in favor of that. Woodrow Wilson, who was the first real progressive president, was a huge proponent of eugenics. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. He's the one who said that black people have smaller brains than white people. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. He's the one. Yeah, he, but, yeah. but what people don't understand is that IQs are not motionless. IQs in, in, evolve. Hmm. If you invest yourself into intellectual endeavors, your IQ is going to rise. Simple as that. But if you're into activities that generate no intellectual value, your IQ will lower itself. If you rather do TikToks rather than reading, then yes, your IQ will not increase. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that, you know, if you do TikTok, you're stupid. But I'm saying like, what <laughs> things that you rather focus on all kinds of activities that do not uh, engage into intellectual things, your IQ mm-hmm. is not going to rise. People always say, like, oh, the Jewish people are the most intelligent people in the world. They weren't born intelligent. Jewish people are doing great because they are involved into science, scientific and intellectual activities. That's mm-hmm. all. <laughs> That's yeah, all. Yeah, and, and you can say the same about, you know, the Asian culture you know, the, the Asians Absolutely. and the Southeast Asians they come to America and they thrive you know in academia Absolutely. and you see them you know in these high high positions and that's because you know a lot of their culture expands upon work ethic yeah. you know a strong exactly. work ethic yeah and, and 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 that's and that's one thing that the welfare state took away from black people that it, it worsened the cultural incentives because it creates that state of dependency. So now people don't see the reason why they have to work to get something 
while they're getting welfare benefits without working. They're sitting in the couch, not doing much, and still getting benefits. So why the guy is going to go working nine to five or even more than that just to earn something that he can earn without putting any effort? Mm-hmm. So that's what it is. That's what is uh, destroyed the community, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So on the topic of white privilege and privilege as a whole, you say that it doesn't really have any bearing anymore in the, you know, in, in in modern day society here in America, but you know, that is the narrative we're being pushed. And I see a lot of these things where it says, Oh, whiteness, this and whiteness, because they are white, they're inherently racist. And, you know, and, and for me, when, when that kind of came out, I, I questioned it because yeah, you know, one thing I, I have in my own experiences, I have, you know, dealt with prejudice. Not all of it has been from white people you know it's been a lot of it has been for my own people and that's one thing that I kind of question and I understand I don't have the same experiences as you know say a a black woman would or you know somebody in America so when you say white privilege doesn't have a bearing on today's society a lot of people would be like you're crazy or you're in denial or this and that what would you say to that why why do you say that white privilege doesn't really have power these days when People are saying that, ask them how Booker T. Washington was one of the richest black men in the early 1900s when there was Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. There were people, there were black people in America, even at the time where slavery was still illegal institution, they were already wealthy, like almost millionaires in, in dollars. So it is not white privilege. White privilege has nothing to do with the decisions you make for yourself. If, let's say, you live in the south side of Chicago, first of all, white people don't go to the south side of Chicago because it's a dangerous place. So the, so the decisions you make there that keep impoverishing you, how the white person, what, what the white person has to do with the decisions that you make that impoverish you there. Mm-hmm. I've been here for 10 years. No white single person prevented me to become a writer. No single white person prevented me to become a political scientist. No single white person is preventing me to become a statistician and and, and an economist. No one. I'm I'm doing those things on my own. Mm-hmm. People don't understand. Why people don't even have time? Why people don't have time to focus on all those stuff? Don't, why those guys want is to make the money? They don't give a they don't give a damn. I'm sorry for my language, but they do not care at all. People mm-hmm. don't understand that. The white person doesn't have time to leave what he's doing to go oppressing you. Mm-hmm. They don't have so, time for it. Yeah, and so what about systemic racism? What is your viewpoint on that? Systemic racism is no longer relevant as well. It has existed, same as white privilege, so system racism and white privilege is the same thing. But once again, it is no longer relevant. Isabella, think about it. We, you, you have more, among all the minority groups in America, which minority group has the most people in political office? I would say black people. Thank you. <laughs> but yes, we're black people. And yet, who is the most who, who is the poorest community in the country? Black people. Mm. So you see that there is a complete rift between political power and economic salvation. 
John Lewis died. We say he's a hero, sure. But has the lives of black people in Atlanta all of a sudden improved because John Lewis was a congressman? And for how long has he been congressman? <laughs> long time. <laughs> for a long time. But we can look at the data to see uh, the poverty rate in Atlanta. It's pretty high. So if political power was the, the tool to improve economic emancipation, Black people would have been the richest community uh, among all the minorities. Mm-hmm. But we're not. And if you think about it, Asians, have all, they have almost no, uh, none of the people in political power. Hmm. Maybe two, three max at the federal level. But you, if you see there's almost no Asians in politics, mm-hmm. they know why they're not in politics. And, and that concept is even in Africa. Where I'm from, we have a lot of Lebanese. There's a huge Lebanese community in Africa. None of them, I'm telling you, none of them ever held a single political office since mm-hmm. they've been established in Africa. Whether it's mayor, whether it's a representative, whether it's a, um, to be a minister or even president. Never. But the Lebanese are the richest community in Africa and in most African countries. Mm-hmm. How do you explain that? Yeah. Yeah. And and that I see that a lot here, you know, and I know a lot of people who are business owners and, you know, my neighbors, people who are, you know, well off and a lot of them aren't white, (laughs) you know, a lot of them are, you know, Indian or Lebanese or Hispanic. And that's one thing I think the media doesn't touch upon is those. No, the media doesn't. It goes, it goes against their interests. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People don't understand that there, I, I don't watch the media at all, and the reason I actually get my information through social media sometimes, right? mm-hmm. I, or I read articles. But I don't watch the media because the media, for the media to make its money, it has to divide. Mm-hmm. The media never reports things that are peaceful. Who's interested to watch things that are peaceful? That when say, oh, Sasa Chicago today we have twenty deaths from a gang shooting. Everybody's watching. Mm-hmm. That's what the media wants. That's what the media does. They, they, sure. they, they're showing you stuff that instigates fear. Yeah. That when the media talks about Africa, it's always um, starvation, wars, civil wars, like uh, tribalism. They will never show you innovation, for instance, like, oh, there is a city being built somewhere in Africa or where like jobs are being created. They're not showing you that. But they were showing you two tribes fighting each other, shooting each other. They show you, they show you the civil war destroying uh, civilization. That's what they will show you. Mm-hmm. So the media is the enemy of the people. On that one, I agree with Trump. <laughs> <laughs> no, they are. The media are the enemy of the people. Yeah. Absolutely. They, well, they bring nothing good. Same as politicians. Politicians have to always talk about racism to make themselves relevant. Because mm-hmm. if they say that everything is peaceful, no one will listen to them. No one. Exactly. Amen. And, you know, that's the thing is that the media is owned by just six corporations. And there's a lot of research that shows from the inception of the media, you know, back in the early 20th century, it all started from the military. A lot of military 
people, high level military people started CBS, started these major news media corporations. So, you know, it is, it is interesting when you go down that rabbit hole and to realize who is giving you this news, you know, who is behind all this, what is their intent? And I think that's what we always have to realize when we are, you know, looking at who to vote for or, you know, what economic policies or political policies we support, always look behind the intent of the person who is pushing that. I think that's most important. So, you know, going off of this, because you are, you know, highly educated in economics and politics and all these things, who, for somebody who is a novice at politics, who is perhaps young, doesn't know where to start or, you know, where to start researching, or they don't even know what they, what they support, where would you say they can start in doing their research or, you know, forming a political opinion? Read economics because, uh, as I said, you know, people have that tendency to believe that the political process is what improves people's life, which is not. What improves people's life is economics. Because once you understand economics, you understand how the economic system works, and you understand if this economic system is favorable to you to create a business. Why the United States has over a million people every year coming here? Hmm. It's because this country offers economic opportunities that their own country does not. Simple as that. So economics is the first basis. If you read economics, especially like basic books in economics to understand, because economics from, comes from the word to economize. To economize means that there is not enough to supply to everybody. That's what it is. There's never enough. That's why you have competition. Mm -hmm. And then you base competition on merit. That's the best. Merit is the best metric to determine who should have what. Look at healthcare for instance. When Bernie Sanders say, oh yeah, we should make healthcare free. There is not enough medical uh, things to supply to everybody. Mm. You, can make, you can make healthcare free for everyone because if you make it free, it will increase demand, but there will not be enough to supply to everybody. That's why you have long lines, long waiting lists, and the quality of the medical attention is poor. And it's, yeah, th that's what it is. So economics is, that it's important. But politics disregard the first lesson of economics. The first lesson of economics is always to remember that there is not enough to supply to everyone. That's why we have price. Mm -hmm. we have, that's why we have a price system. It's because, because we know that everybody cannot afford it. That's why when you look at the price, if the price uh, is adequate to what you have in your pocket, you take that commodity and you go to the cashier, you pay and you're good. If you see that the price is higher than what you can afford, you go home. <laughs> and that's what it is. Yeah. And then politics says, don't worry about it. It's free. Take it. I take care of it. Hmm. Politics completely disregard the first lessons of economics. If you think about it, politicians always make those promises. We will eradicate unemployment. We will eradicate poverty. It's impossible, realistically speaking, to eradicate an unemployment. Why? Because everybody do not work at the same time, at the same moment. Mm -hmm. And poverty is impossible to be eradicated because there will be always some people that will be poor. People cannot be rich at the same time. Mm 
Mm-hmm. But what politicians do not tell you is how to escape poverty. They never tell you that you need to not have a kid when you're a teenager. You need to graduate high school. You need to not have a criminal record. You need to take all the jobs possible. That comes your way to build experience. And you need to be married before having kids. By doing these five things, you're already increasing your chance to become middle class. Politicians mm-hmm. don't tell you that. Because if they tell you that, they're going to say like, oh, I can do it on my own. I don't need you. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the guy becomes irrelevant. Yeah, Simple as that. So they come and they promise you those things. That's interesting that you say that, you know, those, those five things you outline, because a lot of people would probably take offense to that. Oh, you're saying I can't, I have to get married and all that, because we live in a time where people live life freely, you know, on their own terms and be constrained. And what you just said is a very traditional view, having a family and, you know, working hard and going to school and all these things. But for somebody who perhaps grew up in a very impoverished lifestyle, perhaps in a broken home or, you know, in a place of high crime, for them, it feels like all of that is unattainable. It feels like the whole world is against them. What advice would you have for somebody who is in that place where they feel like the world is against them? Perhaps, you know, they have dealt with a lot of struggle throughout their life. And that idea is very difficult for them. It is difficult because they have a poor mentality. Mm. Those things are not unattainable at all. Why do you feel that you need to have a kid when you're a teenager? <laughs> I ask them like, give me a logical reason why you feel you feel to have a, you feel the need to have a kid at 16. You know, poverty is no longer a thing. It's, it's no longer a lack of material wealth, because even the poorest man in America has an iPhone or an Android. The poorest man in America has a, has air conditioning. The poorest man in America has microwave. The poorest man in America has, la- has uh, laundry machines. People in Africa don't have that. And mm. people don't realize the privilege that they have to be in the United States, to have access to those things. In most African countries, the electricity goes off at least once a day or once every two days. In this country, the electricity never goes off. Mm. People don't understand those little things that they have that makes them ahead of the rest of the world. They don't realize those things. So say that it is impossible to, to, uh, to escape poverty because you come from that environment is, is to fool yourself. I mean, I understand that, yes, you become a product of your environment. I understand that. But never ever forget also that the first and the most powerful tool that God has given each of us is the human brain, mm-hmm. is the ability to think. This is something that no one can take it away from you. So at the end of the day, you can say that you're a product of your environment, but the decisions you make are your decisions. So if you have a human brain, which means that you have the ability to think to generate thoughts and to think for yourself and you decide that you cannot do it because that's the environment I live in, blame yourself for your failures. You cannot blame the system for your failures. Mm. Blame yourself because any of us could do drugs and drugs would kill us, but why we don't do drugs then? <laughs> because we know that it's bad. You know, we understand that it's, it's, it's something that's going to destroy us. So at the end of the day, my parents, for instance, are self-made. 
My mom doesn't come from a rich family. My dad comes from a family of seven. He's the only one who succeeded in his family. My mom was the only one who succeeded in her family too. Mm -hmm. My mom could have had me when she was a teenager. She said, no, I'm going to pursue my studies until I've reached a a level of self-sufficiency where I can have kids. She was with my dad at the time she was a teenager. And they, they never had me or my sister until they reached a, 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 both of them reached a level of self-sufficiency. Mm-hmm. Both of my parents have law degrees. My dad was a practice law for over 30 years. My mom works for the parliament back home. Wow. How that happened? They escaped poverty by doing those five things. Mm-hmm. Simple as that. Yeah. Absolutely. That's all. They, they, there's no miracle about it. So if people know these things and can do it, it's because they don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Because they don't have a gun on their head. No one says that, oh, if you, have a, if you don't have a kid at 16, we will shoot you. <laughs> no one does that. Yeah. They do it on their free will. So who is to blame? Yeah. And I think a lot of you know, politicians and the media tend to push a certain narrative over people to keep people in fear, to keep people feeling weak, like you said, yeah. just to, you know, assert power over people. And Absolutely. that's definitely why we have to question everything we were taught. And that's one thing for me, there were certain mistakes my parents made, you know, my parents were immigrants to this country, they were young and, you know, they struggled, you know, they were in poverty in the beginning because they had a baby. And that's one thing they always taught me is like, you know, go to school, work hard, do these things, don't repeat our mistakes. And they always said, you know, your future generations have to start getting better doesn't matter where we started. You have to start getting better. That's why we came to this country. That's why we struggled so much. That's why we, you know, made sure to do what we could, even if we couldn't afford it, we wanted you to go to the best schools and all these things. And my parents aren't that good with money. You know, they, they, they struggle with money. And that's one thing that I had to learn was like, okay, I don't want to repeat their mistakes. Something my older brother learned too. Like he has a master's in accounting. He's, you know, very well off. And, he taught me the same thing. Like we have to make sure we're well off economically and financially and not to, you know, feel ashamed about that. And that's that mentality that I think people have to understand is your choice, is your choice, whether or not you want to say, okay, I came from this lineage or I came from here. Is that going to define me as a person? No. You are not defined. And that's one thing I always talk about is you're not defined by these external factors. You know, your skin Thank color, you. these things. Thank you. You, <laughs> you are no, defined by your inheritance. On, on yeah. Sunday, exactly. And she used that exact word you said, external factors. And that's mm-hmm. where the victim men- mentality comes from. We, we base our judgment on external factors that do not define us. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, for sure. Well. Yeah. And and I think that you are such a great example of that because, you know, your, your background is incredible. You, and you, I think one thing is that you understood what a big deal it was for you to come to this country. And that's one thing that I think a lot of Americans take for granted. Oh yeah. For me coming to this country was uh, my reward for graduating high school. 
my dad was, if you're not graduating high school, you're not coming here. So when I failed my high school diploma the first time, it was a big hit on me. Mm-hmm. Because coming to the U.S. was always my dream. Coming to the United States, I, I was always fascinated by the Anglo-Saxon mentality. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the Anglo-Saxon mentality is a very pragmatic mentality. It's, a, it's more like business-driven mentality. So when I graduated high school, coming to the U.S. was the biggest gift that my, my, my parents could have given me. We are sending you there, and you're on your own. Find your way. <laughs> That's what happened. Mm-hmm. So when I came here, I was well aware of what I had to do to survive in this country. So it was... You know, in um, Eminem's songs, I forgot the name, when it says, uh, lose yourself. Yeah, when it's opportunity comes once in a lifetime. That's, that's what it was. Mm-hmm. People in this country don't understand how those who do not live here are craving to come to the U.S. People don't understand the lines that people do at the U.S. embassies in those countries. People will go at six in the morning just to go apply for a visa and to get rejected. I mean, they apply and then they go to the interview and there's no guarantee that the, the officer who's working at the visa office will grant them the visa. Mm-hmm. They're betting. People are saving money that they've been uh, working for for years just to make sure that their kids are coming to this country and to give them a better future. So that's why when I see people here talking about social justice, I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, God... <laughs> <laughs> I'm like go to go to some African countries or to some Asian countries or even to some South American countries. You will see the reality there. Oh yeah, for sure. That and that's the thing is it's hard to explain that to people who haven't really left the United States. And I yeah. understand, you know, it takes money to travel and see other yeah. things. But that's the thing is that I have seen levels of poverty in Latin America that are. I mean, heartbreaking to say the least. And a lot of these, these governments have very socialist policies in place. The fact that we're born in America, we have to understand we have a huge level of privilege. And I think we have to make the best, you know, to all my American born people out there, people who live in America, make the best out of this because, you know, in other countries, you don't have that. And you don't have that. And I don't think a lot of people are educated on Marxism or communism and how terrible it can be for society. And that's what I worry about in the United States is it going from, you know, more free market towards these ideas. Do you think that that is something that we will inevitably go into? To be honest, I am not worried. And the reason is because when you compare, for instance, the United States to European countries, the Democratic Party, for instance, here is very right wing compared to a typical Democratic Party in France or in Germany or in Europe. And Europeans are mm-hmm. and we are. So at least, like, yes, people talk about it a lot and stuff like that, but I don't think people will allow it to go that far. That's what reassures me. Uh, because, mm-hmm. yeah, like Europe, for instance, or even any other country on Earth, like, is more left-wing, generally speaking, than the U.S. Because the Democratic Party here, if you put the Democratic Party on the political spectrum, on the international political spectrum, the Democratic Party is more right-wing than a 
conventional left-wing party in Europe or even South America and Africa. So you have people like, it's true that you have people like AOC, a great politician. You're going to be surprised why I'm saying that, but she's a great politician because she has an absolute talent for saying things that make no sense. And that's what politicians are. No, it's true. She's articulated, very articulated, <laughs> but she she's good at, Saying things that make zero logical sense. <laughs> to anyone listening, he's referring to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is a congresswoman in New York. The woman understands the power of social media. The woman understands how the world has become. The woman mm-hmm. understands that she's attractive, so no matter what she says, people would buy it. The more we claim that she's dumb, the bigger her power becomes. The only person that can truly stop her is Candice Owens because Candice Owens is very articulated too and she's pretty authoritarian too, like AOC. So it's like head and tail. You know, it's two sides of the same coin. So, and, 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 but why AOC is dangerous is that she makes people resent all the good fortunes that this country offers to those who are looking for better economic opportunities. So when people are talking about Bernie and Marx, I'm saying, you know, dude, just move to Venezuela for six months and let me know. That's like, I'm not even, I'm no longer debating with people about Marxism anymore. When people talk about Marxism and stuff in the US, I say, please move to Venezuela for six months. That's all I'm asking you. And then come back. Environment, so they don't, that fairy tale thinking that the socialism will improve their life. No, it's garbage want to improve anything. Instead, you will make things worse. Germinal, thank you so much. I don't want to take up any more of your time. And this has been such an enlightening conversation. I, I just, one more question, just to anyone listening, what piece of advice would you give somebody who, just any piece of advice you have? So what I will say is this. God gave all of us the most powerful tool in the universe. It is the human brain. The human brain has helped uh, mankind to achieve the most impossible things. The environment we live in, the nations we build, the civilizations that we built and extend are all based on the human brain. So we must understand that this thing here is the first wealth of man. The material wealth that you have is nothing but a product of the thoughts that we generated here. Mm. So I want to ask people to use their brain wisely, to think before making decisions, because there's some decisions, once you made them, they're irreversible. Mm. So it is important to think, to, to, to be analytical, in the endeavors we want to put ourselves into. To work hard, work ethics is important, especially to be disciplined. Consistency is the key for progress. It is the key for success. And people should never ever forget that there is no destination. The process is the destination. Mm. It's what you accomplish within the process that is your destination. There is no sudden or rich. It's everything you do in between that helps you become 
a better version than what you were yesterday. So believe in yourself, use your brain to do things, uh, believe in your abilities and be obsessed with skills. Develop your skills because the skills are the foundation of self-emancipation. If you're skillful at something, you cannot be the slave of somebody else. Mm. Powerful. Thank you so much, Germinal. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. And where can we find you? And and anyone who wants to buy your books, where can we find all that? So everybody can find me on Instagram. I'm one of your big followers too. (laughs) I love your platform. So those who follow you can definitely follow me on Instagram. Instagram is the platform that I use the most. I've been working on my website. I've been slacking on it because I'm almost, I'm always on Instagram. I'm also on Facebook and my, all my books can be found on Amazon, but there's also eBay, Google Books and Goodreads. But Amazon is the primary source to have access to my books. So I have 14 books. There is a 15th book coming in October. Should I reveal the title? I mean, I, I, yes. I, that would be a huge privilege <laughs> to me to hear. So, yeah, so sure. So basically <clears throat> that book, I, I will be, so it's about the creation of an African Nobel Prize. Oh, wow. And we're going to to publish that in the week the Nobel Prize will be announced. Wow. And the reason why, yep, and the reason why is because the Nobel Prize has always rewarded the same people. Hmm. The Nobel Prize, when I say the same people, it's not necessarily just white people, but the people who work in the same universities all the time. The Nobel Prize doesn't uh, diversify now. There are many African scientists who done a lot, who have done a lot of work, but the work is not recognized. So my friend and I, we wrote that book together and we want to create that prize so that African scientists can have the work recognized too. Mm-hmm. So yes, so that that is my next book and it is to challenge the Nobel Prize, actually. Awesome. So yeah. That's amazing. So that would be awesome to be. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you, you would like that. For sure. Thank you so, so much, yeah. Germinal. So, no problem. Thank you very much, Isabella. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And then, I mean, I'll see you whenever. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. And I will leave all the applicable links in the description of this podcast so you can find Germinal and his most recent book. No matter who you are in this life, no matter what you may be going through or what you're dealing with, your true beauty, your true worth, and your true power always come from within.